The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down Fodor's Guide to Antarctica and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 162 with guest Stephen Forte, recorded live Friday, February 3rd, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering hands-on VBNet 2005 and ASP.NET 2.0 classes on-site and remotely, online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications, online at www.telerik.net. Dot com. And now, the man who invented the Olympic sport of code curling, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin, a bit under the weather this week, here in New London, Connecticut. You're listening to .NET Rocks. And Richard, my in-full health compatriot out there in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, is here on the phone with me. You are a little rough today. I'm uh, I'm shocked. You know what's ironic is that Pat Hines was originally scheduled to be the guest this week. Right. And and he came now with some sort of virus that caused him to not be able to talk. Kind of kind of like me. Yeah. No, this is not a good thing for you to be having. Well, we're only two uh, two and a half hours apart, right? So Right. I'm wondering if they haven't put something in the water supply up here in New England. It's just a flu bug going around. Yeah. It's that time of year. Fortunately, n- none of my neighbors have it, so maybe it's just localized to computer programmers. That's what it is. I, we picked up the same virus. Uh, very nice. Uh, oh, well. Yeah, hey, I, I got to tell you this story. You know, my wife is uh, somewhat involved in the computer industry. It's, it's more the garment trade than the computer industry, but she's working with this company uh, out in Israel that uh, that builds software for the garment industry. Yeah. So... Uh, they've been sort of looking to uh, update their software and their development style and so forth, and been out on the web looking for things. And they sent her a link that she showed me uh, for some information they thought was highly valuable. So she, uh, I went over to her machine to look at what the link was. She fires it up. You'll never guess. Um, I don't know. Billy Hollis's Grok Talk from TechEd in Orlando. Wow. Which is, of course, if you've ever seen this, all the Grok Talks are great, but Billy's... A, it was over time. Remember, we were only allowed 10 minutes? Right. He got close to 12. Yeah. And it's it's like a coming to Jesus kind of talk. It was. He's talking about code addicts. <laughs> he was Reverend Billy. <laughs> he was Reverend Billy. And it is hilarious. <laughs> so apparently, that's made it all the way to Israel, and they love it. Wow. 
Go figure, man. Our Billy Hollis. Yeah. Of course, I mean, it's Billy. You know, it's always a challenge as folks like us who work with them all the time. You don't know, you know, who sees this stuff. I know we see this stuff, but does anybody else? Apparently, other people do when it comes back to us like this. Yeah, I was surprised to find out with that within the first six months of uh, DNR, people in 50 countries were downloading us. Amazing. Well, I don't have any email this week, um, but I did want to mention some crazy things are happening with the schedule for the live shows. We're going to uh, stop doing the shows live for a while. Uh, we, we have a, you know, a chat room where people can listen to a stream and, and chat during the show, but um, the numbers have been dwindling, and we're going to be uh, doing DNR whenever we can for the next few months while my uh, wife is having foot surgery. And uh, everything is being turned upside down schedule-wise, which is okay. You know, that's the way it goes. But um, so so I just wanted to mention that for the live listeners. Don't bother checking in for the next, I don't know, few months. And we'll let you know when we're back on the air, so to speak. Well, Richard, uh, in lieu of Pat Hines' absence due to lack of voice and my impending absence due to lack of voice, we found Stephen Forte. <laughs> Uh, who is always good for a show. And uh, you guys have, we have, the three of us have been talking about doing a show on outsourcing in the state of it in the world. And who could we better think of to, to talk about this than Stephen Forte, who's been in the middle of it. So let me just introduce him. Uh, Stephen Forte has many years of experience as a developer, entrepreneur, consultant, and executive. He speaks regularly at industry conferences like TechEd, CTIM and Advisor DevCon and other conferences around the world. Stephen is also the Microsoft Regional Director for the New York Metro Region, one of the one of the regional directors for the New York Metro Region. He has written several books on database development and is a technical editor of VB SQL Advisor magazine, where he also writes a monthly column. Prior to Corzin, Stephen served as the CTO of Zagat Survey in New York City and was co-founder and CTO of the New York-based software consulting firm, the Aurora Development Group. Will you please welcome Stephen Forte. Hey, guys. Thanks hey. a lot. How are you? Doing good. Third time on the show, Steve, but the first time I've interviewed you. Yes, it is. It's the first. I think I will be the first guest maybe who had a show with each particular co-host. Wow. I should get a medal for that. And while we're on the subject of statistics, I'm the only one of the three of us that has not climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and thrown up. <laughs> that is true, my friend. <laughs> so this is uh, something near and dear to your heart, outsourcing. You've had a lot of experience in this, in this realm. I have, and it's nothing worse, there's nothing worse in the world than a convert, and I am a convert to outsourcing, so I want to get that out right at the beginning of the show. I started out as a developer and hated outsourcing and thought it was the worst thing ever. And you've seen the light. I have seen the light, yes I have. Now, is that only because you don't do so much development anymore? <laughs> I, think it's, I think it's what happened is at first I was an outsourcer. I started my own consulting firm about 10 years ago, yeah. and that pretty much changed my opinion. And then um, offshoring, I was against as well, until in the, the, towards the end of the dot-com boom, I actually saw it work extremely well um, at a dot-com at a that I did not work at, but I was very friendly with their CTO. Mm -hmm. And um, he walked me through all the best practices, and I've kind of never looked back ever since. So what are some of the experiences that you've had with 
outsourcing and offshoring? Well, I think the biggest one that I can say that I've had is a an increase in manpower and a decrease in cost, but not a dramatic decrease in cost, even though the sticker dollar per hour seems pretty low. And um, we've definitely been able to increase our time to market with products and generally keep costs under a pretty decent control. Now, now you're talking about Corazon, right? Uh, yes, I am. So maybe we need to fill people in on exactly what it is you do and why you need programmers. Well, I run a, a small company. We're about 10 or 12 people. And, and probably if you listen to old shows, you'll have traced Corazon's growth over the last three or four years since I've been on .NET Rocks. Uh, we started, as a, started about four years ago. And what we do is we, we're an aggregator. We aggregate a lot of data from a lot of different places. Some of it, uh, a good portion of it is spidered, Google-style, off the web. We crunch it all together in a big, huge data warehouse, which is, you know, terabytes big. And then we distribute the end results. And the type of data that we collect is mostly economic data. And we look at things like job postings. We look at things like the employment market, like governmental statistics from um, you know, the, the United States Bureau of Labor Statistics, Her Majesty's Statistics from the U.K., um, Stats Canada, up in Canada. And we get all these statistics and roll them together with a bunch of algorithms and then produce data elements that we send out to people. And economists are interested in this. Job boards are interested in it. So we have developers that do a variety of things. Uh, one is sitting in a room and figuring out regular expression patterns for all the spidering we do, maintaining mm. our data engine. We need developers to build our website. We need developers to build you know, SQL Server um, stored procedures and all that type of fun stuff that powers our data warehouse and powers our website. So a traditional firm that is data-based uh, is, is all the type of um, work that we need. Now, you do have developers in New York with you. Uh, yes, we do. We have uh, developers in New York. We actually are, we have one developer in New York, a senior developer, and he is, the great thing about this is he will act as a, a mentor and a team lead, and he does not feel threatened. Uh, he doesn't feel like his job is in jeopardy. And um, so it works out very well. It, it takes a while to find the right people with the, the right attitude. So we have a developer in New York who's responsible for certain portions of development, and we have developers overseas that are responsible for other portions of our, um, of our responsibilities. Steve, if I could ask you, um, several years back when the outsourcing uh, began to India and uh, when it all started, people were very bullish on it. And then slowly but surely you began to hear reports of problems that people were having with, uh, with outsourcing cultural problems, um, problems with communication, problems with scheduling. And so you began to feel, I began to feel that, uh, it was swinging back the other way. What is the current, um, you know, uh, conventional wisdom about, about outsourcing and, and its success or failure, uh, and particularly to Bangalore and maybe to other places, because uh, you know Bangalore in India isn't isn't the only place that people outsource software development to. Okay, you're really asking two questions, and I'd like to table the Bangalore and other sources because uh, that, that's a whole separate conversation we can have later in the show about where you can go and okay. what are up and coming places. So let's tackle the first: is the general opinions. Every single problem you've identified exists in outsourcing, including one of the things that people said was a benefit, which is the time zone. You've heard people back when 
were very bullish on outsourcing, said, oh, I can just send a bug to my developers at, at 5 p.m., and by 9 a.m. it's fixed. Um, right. The time zone is not a benefit. It is actually a detriment, um, you know, having developers 5, 10, 12 hours ahead. So to answer your question in full is um, my general opinion is that it's kind of stabilized. It's not back about two years ago where you had presidential candidates here in the States, you know, saying you've outsourced all these jobs, and then you have people on the other side saying, oh, no, but, you know, America gets more insourcing than outsourcing, yeah. uh, which is a statistic, which is true, by the way. More countries outsource jobs to the United States than the United States outsource is out, uh, believe it or not. But I would say that it's probably kind of gathered back down to reality. There's going to be people on both sides of the extreme that are extremely bullish and extremely bearish for their own personal reasons. But I really feel that people have kind of come down to reality because when you're comparing the price per hour and all the things, just like the dot-com boom, you had all of this great hope and desires, and then reality set in. And then the people that have done it right have stuck with it, like myself. Uh, I think we've done it pretty, pretty well. And the people who have done it right have stuck with it. The people that haven't done it right have either gotten burned, sometimes their own fault, sometimes the firm's fault that they've hired. And I, I would say that it's just probably neutral is, is where uh, it's gone before. You don't see the articles in the Wall Street Journal anymore. You don't see you know, the news stories on it as much as you did. Well, now you see books like The World is Flat by Thomas Friedman coming out explaining what's going on in globalization in general. And I think more people are beginning to get it. Uh, I agree. And you know, outsourcing itself is not a form of, um, I mean, is, is a result of globalization. Obviously, Thomas Friedman makes the argument that during the dot-com era, all this fiber was laid under the oceans, and then, you know, the Indian firms can benefit from all that fiber that was laid with, with the bandwidth. And that's pretty much true, because between Skype and email and, um, you know, just fast RDP connections, it really doesn't matter if my um, contractors are in New Jersey or in Bangalore. And um, quite frankly, I think uh, Bangalore might be a better place than New Jersey, but that's my personal opinion. <laughs> no, no bias here from the New York. Oh, no, right? no. <laughs> well, that brings up an interesting question, too, is uh, what is uh, is it that uh, overseas developers are more motivated? I mean, less busy? What What is it about? I mean, is price the only thing that uh, is appealing about overseas developers? Well, I think that's actually it. I think the decision to use overseas developers is actually not one made in the CTO and the technology department. It's being made at the financial departments. It's being made at the CEO, CFO level, not the CTO level. So I would say that price is the number one um, aspect that people are focusing on. And think of it this way. If, you, if you're spending you know, $80, $100 an hour on contractors and someone comes in and says, I can get you contractors for $12 an hour, and they show this to the CFO, you know immediately the minute that salesman leaves, the CTO is going to be in the CFO's office explaining himself. Right. And you know the CTO will make very compelling arguments. There are compelling arguments not to outsource as well. What are, what are those? What are they? Um, my biggest opinion, and one of the things we've, ha we've held the line at core as an extremely firm, is we do not like to outsource something that is part of our core IP, things we're applying for with patents, things that are our core IP that gives us a competitive advantage over our competitors. Now, IP to a developer means something than it does to you, so you're talking about intellectual property here. Correct, not yeah. the internet protocol. <laughs> <laughs> and why do you uh, worry about IP with your outsourcers? It's more of a paranoia thing on the business side, to be completely honest with you. And um, the business folks, 
like to see have the um, complete control over something that they feel gives them that distinct competitive advantage, as do a lot of the investment community. Does that ever get in the way of, of trying to describe how things work to developers and trying to come up with specs that obfuscate the IP aspects of it? But uh, is that ever a problem? I, the way we've done it, it has not been a problem for us. Is our developers actually have the full source to our IP. We have just um, had complete control over it. We have, our developer, New York, is responsible for it. And we've signed an in, a mutual NDA kind of in both directions. And So the NDA is wanted, really what you're counting on. Exactly. Okay. And part of what made the whole outsourcing offshore movement work was that India did sign on to this international agreement for supporting the rules around IP. Exactly. And some countries that have not done that are not seeing the, uh, the benefits of the outsourcing, uh, Russia being an example, and even China being an example. Now, Russia and China are obviously the other two places that uh, people are looking toward what is the difference between uh, developers from India versus developers from Russia? And I don't even know if, if China is on board yet with outsourcing, are they? I Not know that really. they're up and coming. Yeah, they're, they're, I, don't, I wouldn't even call them up and coming. Um, well, Russia is, is – I don't want to give broad stereotypes, but Russian – But let's do it lot, anyway. But let's do it anyway, <laughs> exactly. Is, um, Russian developers will be a little more independent than an Indian developer is what I've noticed. A Russian developer will take more leeway and tend to be even a little more creative at times. And an Indian developer works best when you give them a spec – that lays out extremely clearly exactly what they want to do. Uh, unfortunately, one of the negatives I've seen in quality is there's a lot of copy and pasting code going on, so to speak. Uh, mm. Indians don't tend to build frameworks. They tend to just kind of grunt it out. Or a Russian developer will tend to, over time, um, come back to you with maybe some more suggestions. And, and that's just, quite frankly, a cultural thing. Uh, Russians are, you know, back from communism, are just used to questioning authority. Indians are not, right? That's the, you know, that's a cultural thing. And that leads me to some of the best practices, is really know the culture you're going into. Don't just look at the dollar sign. I've heard of stories, and maybe I even heard them from you, of where um, you'll, you'll be in a conference call with some people from India and maybe the, the manager on a project is female in the state, in your company. And, uh, and the Indians, uh, on the, on the phone will speak over her and not let her talk. And because, you know, they have a different attitude towards, uh, women, right? Have you seen any have, of that? I have actually not seen that. And probably about, 50% of my developers, uh, I have two uh, offshore firms that I'm using, and they're both in India, in different parts of India, and about 50% of my developers are women. And um, I've actually not seen, but I do not have a female project manager. I have a female QA person here in New York, and they, you know, on the phone and on email and everything else, they treat her with um, with pretty great respect. I think what happens is a lot of firms will just treat the client with extreme deference, yeah. Almost taking that customer's always right attitude a little too far. Yeah. And whether it's a male or female, something that might culturally not mix with them is, um, you know, will filter through. I'm not sure where I heard that story. And I'll have to, uh, I'll have to go find out now because I don't want to just leave it hanging out there. <laughs> but you may have an interesting point, which is that with those cultural differences, you're going to get a whole other layer of misunderstanding. The basic challenge of communicating well what you need built is still there. You just added an extra layer of complexity. Well, several layers, really. Absolutely. And 
Well, I was going to also just add to that as one of the other things about cultural that you, that people may not take into consideration that in places like India and Russia and China or Ukraine or wherever it is you're going to be outsourcing, we'll have things like national holidays that are nowhere near July 4th and Thanksgiving and right. Christmas. Uh, they'll have national holidays like Diwali, which is a week-long festival of lights in India, which is usually around Halloween. And... Um, mm. You know, so that's another cultural aspect besides the communication that you have to kind of be aware of because they may just assume you know that and that the whole office is closed for that week and you may have massive deadlines coming. So it goes back to what Richard said is communicating those communicating those actual requirements and then working with the project plan. Yeah. So what about project planning? Is it really any different than building a project plan that you would do with local developers? It actually is identical. Uh, you're managing developers at the end of the day, and the and all of the intricacies of working with a developer are exactly the same. So one of the things that I've learned as a best practice, besides thoroughly researching the culture you're going to be working with and, uh, and you're having a clock on the wall at the time and knowing all their holidays and putting those in your in your corporate holidays, is um, actually going over there uh, face-to-face and explaining the specifications to them. Because why wouldn't you do that if you were working with developers here? If you were outsourcing to a guy, even if it's down the road, that guy's going to come to your office and you're going to explain the requirements of the system. You're going to go over the spec together, answer questions. So before each major project, I go and I spend a week in India on-site and I, I work with them and go over the questions and actually sit with the developers, sit with the project manager. We build a project plan together and manage it together but then we actually go over the specifications. So it really is the exact same thing, except you have to go take a you know, 5, 10, 12-hour flight wherever it is that you're outsourcing. Yeah, and I know that you've got the travel bug as bad as I do, so that's hardly a hardship. Yeah, the problem with that, though, is you spend most of the time in the office, so you don't really get to see the, uh, the place that you're going if you're, really, um, you know, if you're really doing it right. Unfortunately, is, you know, you're needed back at the office, and they're sending you thousands of emails and voicemails, and you're you know, 10 and a half, 12 hours ahead. It's, um, it could be a bit of a drag at times, but you have to do it. You have to really actually do it. Well, there's no substitute for shaking hands and, and seeing people face-to-face. I guess that, that's true of any project, no matter where it is. I, I agree. And I think when you first look for a, um, a company you're going to work with, obviously price is going to be a factor, but when you've narrowed it down through emails and phone calls and Skype and everything else, actually go see your finalists. Go see the two or three firms and check out their operations. See if they have things like backup power. Like in India, power is a problem. Over in um, the former Soviet Union, there's a lot of problems with um, turnover. A friend of mine went to this place in Siberia, and he said he was there for three weeks. And, you know, on his project, three different people were working on it, you know, different turnover each week. So you want to go and check out the actual firm face-to-face before you even sign them on. And then go back or stay over there once you actually have your initial, um, you have your initial project plan put together. During the events Richard and I held at user groups all over the United States last year on the .NET Rocks Visual Studio 2005 road trip, we asked the audience if anyone uses Telerik controls. Without fail, the hands would go up, and the feedback was clear. Telerik controls are awesome. 
The Q4 2005 version of their RAD control suite is out now, and I'm so excited to let you know that it comes with no less than five, that's right, five new products. These are Toolbar, Input, Calendar, Upload, and a unique control called RAD Window. The new volume also includes major updates of Telerik Grid, Combo Box, and Callback products. The Data Grid release is particularly interesting. Telerik RAD Grid now offers advanced out-of-the-box AJAX support, filtering, automatic insertion of records, support for the automatic data editing operations of ASP.NET 2.0 data source controls, and much more. Those of you who are interested in AJAX will be keen to learn that Telerik has also released a new version of their AJAX suite, RAD Callback, which offers considerable performance improvements and two new controls. That alone is loads of new stuff for a single release, isn't it? But obviously the guys at Telerik don't think so, as they've also added .NET 2.0 versions of all products of the suite. They are built and compiled for the official release of Visual Studio 2005 and are offered for free with every product license. So I suggest that you visit the Telerik website at www.telerik.com. Check out the online demos and download the new RAD Control Suite Q4 2005. Steve, do you mind sharing some of the uh, the the problems that you've had in terms of maybe uh, things that have happened that uh, have been unexpected crises? Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting is what's happened is it goes back to the thoughts of having someone do exactly what they're told. And um, we would have um, people work on some of the sites that were going to spider for us and then return the files for us, and then we would load them into our database, and then they're not working. And we're like, how come this isn't working? And so we go back and forth, you know, a hundred times, just like you would with any developer, right? It works on my machine. You know, that, right. that, 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 <laughs> that line works in Hindi and Russian and every other language. Um, <laughs> I'd actually love to go and put a website together if it works on my machine in every language where there's outsourcing going on, like Excellent. Ukraine, Excellent. Romania, <laughs> Poland. Um, so you get the it works on my machine all the time. And um, so then what happened was the first thing is the developers will not ask for help. And this might be a cultural thing, and they won't ask for help because maybe they don't want the client to think they can't figure it out or maybe because it's not part of their culture. So you have to really make yourself available for help to the point where I just kind of let them go for a couple of days, and then I didn't hear anything from them. So I figured, oh, maybe they're working on this particular point on the project plan. And then after about three days of not hearing anything, I pinged them and said, hey, what's going on? And they're still like, you know, 16 points higher than I thought they would have been at because they got stuck on something and never raised their hand for help. And that became a little bit of a crisis in that respect because we already lost all that time when it really right. was a simple answer that they could have gotten from our developer here in New York. And another crisis is when... They send the data back and forth, as I was describing a moment ago. I asked them, hey, before you send it back, run a check file against this, which basically would run and process all the spidering and then send it in an XML file, and then, and then they'd send that XML file back to us. So if we were to scrape 100 sites, they would have an XML file with 100 you know, elements with all the data that they're scraping. And 
ever since I implemented that, we started getting half the production. And they kept saying, oh, well, the XML is taking a long time. And I'm like, what's going on? And it wasn't until I actually walked in and saw what they were doing. They were generating you know, the XML all wrong, and they had very slow lines. So it was taking all night. And if it stopped at the 99th URL of 100 that started from the beginning, instead of just picking it up where it left off, because uh-huh. I, literally they were doing exactly kind of what I told them to do. So we worked on a compromise to get that the same data elements back, but not nearly as much. And it, um, you know, it doubled, you know, productivity overnight. So it all goes down to communication. It all comes down to, you know, every little crisis that we've had and we've been late on something you know, that we've promised a customer. We've had a, we've had a service level agreement. It's come down to they didn't understand the requirements or they just were kind of, you know, banging their heads against the wall and not really raising their hand for help. And I take it that these uh, developers are in India, right? Yes, I have uh, two firms that I'm using in India, and I'm actually interviewing next week in Egypt, a firm in Egypt, to do some uh, work, which brings me up to another kind of best practices. If you have multiple things going on at your company, you may want to spread the risk around and um, outsource at different places. If you, if you have that luxury, if you have two small projects, outsource them to two different areas, um, potentially two different countries, or at least two different firms, even if they're in the same country. And that will let you know how you work with each of them. You're building two relationships, and then you can keep going forward with them. And um, we have two firms, one in New Delhi and one in Pune, which is a suburb of Bombay. And, um, and we have them doing um, some slightly different things. And um, we're looking for a third, potentially. That brings me back to the second half of my first question, which is, you know, what are all the places that are doing uh, outsourcing? And um, I don't know, anything that you might want to say about them? Well, there's I've, I looked mostly at India only because that was what was in the news at the time. We started about two, two years, two and a half years ago outsourcing. That was kind of in the news, and when you thought outsourcing, you really thought India, which isn't really the case anymore. And um, my very first experience six or seven years ago, uh, the dot-com era was in India as well. And um, there were some pretty good best practices that I learned there, which was mostly the going there physically and, um, you know, managing the developers as, you know, as regular developers. They're no, they're no different than you. And, um, you know, since then, I know there's a lot of folks, there, there's some outsourcing being done in Israel. There is outsourcing being done in Russia and the former Soviet Union, most of the Eastern European countries. They're servicing a lot of corporate accounts and markets in Europe. So I have a friend who works at a firm based in Munich, and they're outsourcing to Poland and Romania. So you'll see a lot of um, the Eastern Europeans uh, working with the European market. You'll see a little bit in Southeast Asia, in Malaysia. And um, I don't really see anything in Latin America. I don't really see anything in Africa. Um, I am starting to see Egypt crop up. And um, and Egypt isn't really as organized into firms. It's mostly single-man shops and and other than that. And I was recently speaking at a software conference in Karachi, Pakistan, uh, actually six or seven months ago, not really that recently. And they're really starting to push really hard into that as well. They're saying, uh, you know, we can be outsourcing as well. And what about China? I have not seen anything in China. And um, I had a, a friend and, um, who was recently on the show, so you guys can try to figure out who it, who it is, who um, is from Australia. <laughs> <laughs> Do the math. Uh, recently hmm. trying to hire some folks in the People's Republic of China. And he and I had a long conversation because he's doing some successful outsourcing as well. And um, he's not doing as much as I am about 
you know, a good portion of my development is done offshore, a small portion of his is. And we were trading, you know, just best practices together one day, and he was saying, don't go into China. He goes, it's crazy. He's like, it's illegal to have gaps on your resume. <laughs> like, that's the first thing. Wow. Um, and there's just a lot of cultural problems, he said, hiring people that your company cannot actually do business. If you want to set up a center in China, you actually can't set up a business. You have to go into partnership with a government-run industry or a government-run business because of the communist uh, rulers there. There's no technically there's no private industry, right. so there's a lot of barriers to outsourcing there. Um, what will most likely happen is somebody will come together and build a firm, you know, like an Infosys in China, and actually then sell their services in that respect. I don't know what will happen with language barriers and things like that. I mean, this has been an an up and coming target for you know people have been talking about. Once they get into the market, watch out. I mean, there's billions of people over there. Right, but there's also, if you think about it, there's billions of people, but you go to all the different parts of China, and it's very rural and, and, you know, not connected to the Internet, and, you know, a lot of farmers over there. You know, I think it's about 700 million live live on farms. So, you know, just like here in the States, you don't have many farmers turning around tomorrow being, you know, qualifications to be a software developer. But isn't Hong Kong, like, one of the biggest cities in the world? Uh, Hong Kong, yes. And um, Hong Kong, oddly enough, is a more of an expertise in uh, the garment trade. You see a lot of um, mm. you know people making suits there and everything. And there's no real, um, you know, because of the British, because of the British occup- uh, occupation is the wrong word, but because of the British ruling of Hong Kong for all those years, it has developed a true kind of Western economy with a standard of living on par with you know New York or Vancouver, or New yeah. London, Connecticut. So. The low wage is is a factor in Hong Kong. Hmm. You're not going to get people willing to work for the kind of prices that you are in. Um, so in other I guess it, so. I guess it doesn't look like there's going to be anything happening there anytime soon. I would I would make that argument. I would say that you are probably right. You're not going to see a massive kind of explosion of outsourcing in China all of a sudden, the way we did in India, like, you know, literally overnight, right? I mean, yeah. even though they've been there for years, it automatically, about two years ago or three years ago, just popped up in the news and was everywhere. Yeah, was, so, and that really. was partly to do with, with uh, international agreements. Uh, you certainly have the populace. We had the bandwidth laid down with the new uh, Indian Ocean trunks that got put through there. So it's just a, the, sort of that combination of it's now legally safe, there's lots of bandwidth, and there's a skilled workforce. Okay. Right. I think there's also a lot of people also believe the hype, so to speak, is, you know, after, um, you know, after the dot-com bust and the recession, there was a lot of, you know, Y2K and then the recession and the dot-com bust and, and September 11th, there was just a lot of layoffs and, you know, collapsing of the technology budgets. And I think what happens is starting around, you know, 03, people started realizing, hey, we can't just cut the tech budgets and ask them to do more with less. That just doesn't work. And then they said, well, we need to be able to do more with less. And, you know, just yeah, maybe purchasing some Microsoft products doing more <laughs> with less. But um, they, real, they got sold the bag of goods that said, hey, you know, if... Um, if you're you're getting you're paying a developer a hundred thousand dollars a year over in India, if you pay them ten thousand dollars a year, you know you can get ten developers for one person and be you know ten times more productive. And you know, I would make the argument you're more like, you know, half as you know you might you're not going to be ten x productive. You'd be more like two x productive. Well, you know that brings me around to this uh, question. We've been talking about how how great uh, how bullish you are on outsourcing from um, you know from a consultant business perspective 
But what about the developers who listen to the show? I mean, are they going to, are, are we saying basically quit your job, go to Bangalore, the, you know, go live there. You'll, you, you'll have job security. I mean, what does it mean for Joe developer in the United States? I mean, they can't obviously just turn around and uh, find somebody in Bangalore to do all their work for them at work, you know, and then sit back and throw darts all day. Or can they? Um, no, I, I agreed. Uh, the first thing I want to point out is I read an article in the Wall Street Journal about um, kids, computer science majors outsourcing their homework and final exams to Bangalore, oh, which, I, which I found <laughs> quite interesting. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> so I want to I want to throw that out there, but I, what does this mean to the average developer here in the, you know in the states and in, the, in Western Europe? Is here's something that I kind of beat my buddies over in India over the head with all the time, and I say um, you know two generations ago, the really smart you know um, Indians that were willing to take a risk and were entrepreneurial. They went out and they came to the United States, and they formed companies like Sun Microsystems, you know, like Vinod Khosla, the, the, the richest Indian on the planet. The next generation, which is um, about my, my age group in the, in the early 30s, the next generation decided to stay in India. And what did they do? They started outsourcing companies. And um, I keep saying to them, what is the third generation of Indians going to do? And they say, start outsourcing companies. And they're pretty content on that. And one of the things I said to them was, what about innovation? And they said, no, we're, we're really just interested in you know, building an empire of cheap labor. And what we'll do is when Indians become too expensive, we will go and go into outsource in Pakistan and Bangladesh and other cheap places. And, and I said, how come the next Google and the next Microsoft um, won't be an Indian? And they said, well, Indians are too risk-adverse, and that might change. But I really think that um, innovation is one area where, you know, Joe Developer here in the States and in the West really will, will be able to, to stride. And I think that a developer that runs their own maybe small consulting firm might want to partner up with a team in India and have them do a lot of the grunt work, so to speak, while they'll work on things like frameworks and architecture and um, you know, higher level kind of, you know, putting these two little, you know, putting the plumbing code of these um, chunks together. So there's definitely a, a place for, um, you know, with the outsourcing with, with the folks here yeah. where they should not really feel threatened. There's certain core functions of, of your job that will never be outsourced, um, in my personal opinion. You know, some companies make these drastic moves and outsource an entire department. Well, you know, that's unfortunate. I think that's short-sighted. And I think, I think, the, I think we're not going to see those in the news anymore because I think the people that have done that have gotten burned and started to kind of rein that in to some degree. Well, you're finding when they try and do a move like that, they also end up shipping a bunch of people there to take care of it. You know, there's different layers of operation when you talk about running a department and you're going to bring your own management in and relocate them to, to India. You know, that's not an easy thing to do and it's not all that worthwhile. I, I tend to agree. And then um, I, I've seen some firms who had as many as 800 people in India, and what they have done, and this is some of the, the best practices, and not everyone follows this, is they've actually, they actually send their managers over there. So they might have a dozen managers over there in India, and the firm they're working with in India will have one or two people full-time over here, and then those 800 developers, like 20 at a time, will rotate for two or three months into the United States and actually work alongside the developers here in the States. So... 
there's there's definitely ways to do it with the presence, and there's a break-even point, so to speak, where you're not gaining the financial leverage you thought you were going to gain and the benefits that you thought you were going to gain, and you're not gaining the speed that you thought you were going to gain, and then it's, well, why are we doing this? And I think a lot of the big firms that just kind of said, we're going to give all of our global services over to X company over there overseas have realized that a hybrid model is one that works the best. And that's what I predict will happen in the future is you'll have a, a hybrid model. It must We're be really walking our way back to this whole world is flat idea that it's all ending up being the same thing. Well, it makes sense for a multinational corporation to have a development center in the states and have a development center in you know India and have you know take advantage of the local economies or take advantage of the talent pool that's here. So I got to come back to this. So you said that uh, you know that there are opportunities um, for for developers here, especially in architecture and higher level things and innovation. What are the telltale signs that you, as a developer, that your job might be in jeopardy? Well, I think the the biggest sign is when you open up the Wall Street Journal on page one and your company's uh, CTO has an announcement that they've outsourced 3,000 jobs to India. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> before that happens, before you know, what, that happens, what, what, what are, you want to know before What are the happens? warning signs? Like if you look around at your job and, you know, what are the things you should look out for? I think the things you should definitely look out for is if you're doing very routine type of work that... Um, really is kind of below your skill set. If you kind of got stuck doing a, you got kind of just by happenstance or bad luck, you got stuck in a role where you're just, you know, maybe you're building some user interfaces. You know, you're not really writing code that you're using your brain too much. You're kind of dragging and dropping. You're a coder. You're writing to a spec. Exactly. And then you may, you may, and if you're in a large enough company and, and the buzz is around, that's definitely one of the learning signs. So if you're a developer and you're, as I said, kind of just writing directly to that spec, or if you could be writing a spec for something very complex, but if you're just doing uh, what you consider pretty basic stuff, or, you know, let's use the term easy, what you think is kind of easy, you're probably um, at risk. Now, I mean, your job may not be at risk, but that particular function might be at risk, and you may be, you know, reassigned, uh, you know, depending on what your company is doing. I mean, I've got to imagine, if you've got a productive group building software successfully, generally businesses don't want to touch that. It's a known quantity. They're getting results. But if, you've, if you're thrashing, if you're missing milestones and, and the product's not getting out the door and people are throwing their hands up in the air, I guess anything's possible at that point. Right, and that's when the management decisions being made tend to be more of the irrational side. Uh, you know, they're not well thought through. They're made with a little bit of emotion, right? They're they're kind of going in there. Well, you guys are late all the time, and I got the salesman telling me I'll, you know, I'll make all the deadlines, and I'll have service level agreements, and it's like you know half the cost. Some and, some so maybe a good uh, a good advice for a developer who who is now listening and saying, hey, that's me. Some good advice might be to, uh, you know, start thinking about going into uh, design and architecture. I mean, what's, well, I mean the, uh, what's the advice that you could give this person? I think there's uh, two pieces of advice. If you're interested in design and architecture, uh, definitely start looking into that area because that's one of the areas that the strategic advantage of doing it locally is strong. And I think another area is if you're one of those developers where you're doing just, um, you know, that routine work, speak up about it and say, hey, you know, this is this is work that, um, you know, someone else can probably do much more effectively. I, I'd rather work on, you know, working on that API over there. I'd rather work on the plumbing code over there and, um, you know, try to 
volunteer yourself out of that particular area. If you don't understand that stuff, if you're a new developer, um, the stuff isn't that hard. You know, go to a conference, go, you know, pick up the books and, and hit the books and actually start, you know, start working with that stuff. There's another avenue as well, which is management. Uh, some, some developers might like to go into management. I've always said that promoting developers into management is not necessarily the best thing because uh, developers tend to be very introverted and interested in code, not actually managing people. But um, if that's something that interests you, um, that's something another area to look at as well. I think that if developers have the people skills, that they actually make the best managers because they understand developers. I, I agree 100%. But, it, but it's the matter of having those skills. And you're well, right. In the same way that, that you've got a senior developer in New York working with the folks in India, there's always a need for a role to be the bridge between the two uh, sets of, of people. Exactly. And that is a definite area where that's, he's not really management and he's really still a developer, but he's, he's more like a team leader, team leader, liaison and mentor all rolled into one in, in addition to being a developer. It's pretty good. Yeah, so those are definitely areas that developers can look at if they think that their um, you know firm might potentially you know do some outsourcing. Um, another way to kind of get some um, you know like job kind of um, you know job security is just you know something that I've used to do when I was um, you know like a young programmer. I'd start declaring all my variables in German and obfuscate um, <laughs> my code the best I can and. <laughs> Oh, man. Nice. Well, if you've listened to earlier episodes of .NET Rocks, you've probably heard my interviews with Mark Miller, Chief Architect of Developer Express's Code Rush and Refactor Products. But what you may not know is that Developer Express offers a full line of feature-complete visual components and IDE tools for Visual Studio.net. To build stunning and flexible applications, you need feature-complete components, components that work as expected each and every time. Developer Express's complete range of visual components will help you emulate today's most popular UIs without hassles or aggravation. Like all of their tools, the components are written in C-sharp and fully optimized for the .NET framework and all .NET languages. I have spent some time talking with Mark Miller about the architecture of their components, and I'm very impressed. Developer Express has taken the time up front to position their components as extremely powerful and, of course, agile, ready to adapt to the challenges that lie ahead. You also may not know that Developer Express offers a comprehensive reporting platform for Windows and the web. Extra Reports is fully integrated into the Visual Studio.NET IDE and set the standard for ease of use and flexibility. With Extra Reports, you never have to cringe at the thought of having to design a report again. So take a look and see what Developer Express can do for you at www.devexpress.com. Steve, you've, you've mentioned more than once here that uh, outsourcing is really uh, usually an avenue for large companies, uh, but I don't see Corzin as all that big of a company. What makes you different? What makes us different is we are a startup, okay? So I, w- I would make the argument that, um, you know, small startups 
and large companies. I'll actually amend what I said before. So we started with very little money and had to grow organically and and um, went in that direction. I think mid-sized established businesses that have been around for a while that have that are my size or just, you know, between 10 people and 150 people, those are the guys that are probably not going to be doing much outsourcing. I think it's the large, big international corporations, partly because they're international in scope in the beginning, is a multinational corporation. They might even have a presence in the country they're thinking of outsourcing. And then small companies like mine, we just kind of got started, as I said, four years ago, and we did it pretty cheaply. And um, it was just one of the next logical steps. I mean, we use, you know, Skype for most of our communications as much as we can, voice over IP. We really try to be a virtual company in that respect, so it's a natural extension of our business model. So I think that's what makes us different than, let's say, my former company, Sagat, that I used to work at. We're about 150 people, and, um, you know, there's 10 developers on staff. And um, they went through rounds and rounds of layoffs after the dot-com bust, and there's still probably about five or six developers on staff there, and they're not doing any outsourcing um, for that type of stuff. They've done some outsourcing to have folks come in and do architectural reviews and things like that, but they still have a core solid information technology team there. I guess it makes sense to me that the medium-sized companies would be the least likely because they're sort of between the the organizational structures of a large company that can really remote uh, development process and these small companies where it's very key people in the business that are going to be the facilitators of uh, the software development team uh, in the outsourced country. Exactly, and that and that that tends to be the distinction between them. And if you look at um, the companies in India, because I went and visited a bunch when I was making my decision, and you look at these companies and say, you know, who are your customers? And that's why it's always good to go visit them, because then you can see, am I going to be an important client to them, or am I not going to be an important client to them? You go to the big firms and the big outsourcing firms, and they're all they're all supporting the big American and European companies. You know, they're supporting Microsoft and AIG and all those guys. Then you go to the medium size and smaller firms overseas, and they're they're supporting companies my size. You know, ten people, twenty five people, and it's because it's just as you said, there's key strong players with with a stake in the business. A lot of times, I also see small firms that do not have much technology need that all of a sudden need like a database system for processing orders or something like that or or a website. You know, we need to manage a website now. We need a web presence. And um, they get sold completely on cost. And these are small companies with no technical teams whatsoever that would Mm -hmm. have outsourced the whole solution in the first place. Are they um, at pretty serious risk? I I think it's a serious risk in any respect, whether you're going to be outsourcing it to um, the guy down the block or outsourcing it halfway around the world. I think that you would need some form of technology presence. If you're going to rely on technology at your company, you should have some form of technology presence at your company. But I see it. Actually, I, I went to lunch. I was just in India last week, and I went to lunch with the CFO, the CTO, and the CEO of um, the company. I guess they're trying to wine and dine me. And... Um, what happened is I asked them about how they got started and a lot of things, and they were started about six years ago, and they got started, actually their first customer was an Indian customer, but their second customer was a small firm, like I just described, and they're still a customer. And they're not necessarily a cash cow, but they're locked in there now, and I think there is a degree of risk in that uh, for that smaller customer. I mean, they're doing good work for them, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to bash that, but since that smaller company's never really hired an IT team, they're really kind of saying, well, you guys handle it all. Right. Yeah. And they are taking a risk in the sense that there's a whole bunch of critical 
uh, capability for that company that's dependent on this remote organization. Exactly. And if you compare that to my company, I've managed developers for 10 years. So now I just manage developers that you know, speak English as a second language and live 10 and a half hours ahead of me in time zones. It's not much of a difference other than that. As I said, you know, with my joke before about it, you know, works on my machine. I get that all the time. Right. And all the same tricks that developers do, they want to use the new technology for the sake of using new technology. Let's use this because it's new. And um, all that stuff plays. And, you know, as I said, since I've been managing developers for a long time, I get what I pay for, but I put in a lot of effort. So I get, I set high standards and I get it. People who don't have that technology talent in-house are going to get what they pay for. And, um, you know, quality may not suffer, but they may not get exactly what they want. Steve, what are some other... created dependency. Steve, what are some other resources that you could point to? I mean, I I read The World is Flat, and and it sort of summed up what I was already thinking, but, you know, in great detail. Um, There's... And and we'll talk about insourcing a little bit, too, which is one of the one of the flattenings of the uh, the world, one of the, the ways in which the world is flat, Friedman talks about. But uh, what are some other books that you've read or resources that you could point people to if they want to s- truly understand what's going on here? Um, interesting enough, there's really no one definitive um, you know resource that I that I went to. I just kind of pulled some things together. There is a um, a trade organization in New York called the IT Managers Forum. And what they have done is they they have a whole outsourcing kind of wing to it. I went to one or two of their meetings. And I would would say that trade organizations or or user groups or anywhere where technology companies gather together is where you want to go and ask people for their best practices and their opinions. And quite frankly, in all honesty, what you really need to do is when you've made your decision on your the country you're going to be going into, whether it's, you know, I'm outsourcing to Poland or I'm outsourcing to Russia or India, Go learn about that culture. Go read a book about that culture, its history. Read it, you know, I'm not saying go to college and take a big textbook in a class, but go read something, go to the bookstore and see something that looks interesting on that culture. And, you know, go to, a, go to an ethnic restaurant in your neighborhood. So I've learned to, um, I've learned to eat vegetarian when I'm in India because, you know, where I, where I go, it's all vegetarian restaurants. Or and, maybe, um, you, maybe you happen to know, you know, an Indian or a Polish or a Russian developer. I mean, these are exactly. great resources. Ask them what it's like, exactly. So in that respect, there's no really kind of like, you know, outsourcing.com. Well, there might be an outsourcing.com, <laughs> but there's <laughs> maybe outsourcing.org. Um, but what will happen is there's no real kind of definitive book because each experience is fairly unique. There's a couple of, um, you know, testimonials and best practices on, on the big companies' websites. But as, as a rule, there's really no kind of like um, one resource to go to. So what about insourcing? Insourcing being going to companies like uh, UPS, as an example Friedman gives, that when you, when you send your Dell computer back to Dell to get fixed, UPS will come pick it up and they'll take it to their hangar, you know, where they'll fix it on behalf of Dell and then bring it back to you. You know, this, companies like UPS and FedEx are doing all these kinds of services that go way beyond bringing packages from me to you. Exactly, and it's, and it's in some ways it's a logical extension of those companies' business models, right? So UPS is a, you know, a company that has this global infrastructure, and now you're being you're using that global infrastructure to leverage another line of business, right. and this is something that I think will only grow as time goes on, and I think it's a benefit both to the consumer and it presents itself a tremendous amount of business opportunity. Yes, and. Um, 
for for example, is um, in in my 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 customer base is we do a lot of that on behalf of our customers. We actually go out and process data merge it with other pieces of data on behalf of them and their sales force. We host pages that link right out of their CRM system that are completely branded. You don't see our corporate logo on it anywhere or anything like that. And um, it's presented a great business opportunity for us. And as people become more familiar with this, meaning as they could become more comfortable of sending their computer out to Dell, and Dell's like, well, the UPS guy is going to fix it. Um, I think businesses, there'll be more and more business opportunity for it because people want things faster and cheaper. And this is a way to actually do it. Yeah. And this, uh, this is a, a nice offset to the effects of, of outsourcing jobs and because it really creates jobs. Well, what's interesting is um, I'm, I'm reading this really big book about um, the history of New York City. It's like 1,400 pages, and I'm about, about halfway through. And one of the things I learned was in the, um, in like the 1820s, almost all of the clothing in the United States, like 90% of the clothing in the United States, was made on the island of Manhattan. And um, they started making it cheaper, you know, God forbid, in New Jersey and in other places. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the talk of the town in 1810 We're going to hear York from City. Miguel Castro, you know. <laughs> you know we're going to hear something. That's true. <laughs> but the talk of the town in 1810 in New York City was, oh, my God, all these manufacturing jobs. It was 70% of the city's economy. The other was shipping. Um, is going over across the river to New Jersey. It's going, you know, to you know, low-cost places like Pennsylvania. Certainly didn't go to Connecticut. <laughs> Certainly didn't go to Connecticut, <laughs> is right. And then, you know, the other thing was shipping, is, you know, New York dominated the, the country's shipping, and then after a certain point, the, um, there was no room for it, and it all went to the port of Newark. Now New York City doesn't even have a port, so, they, so it's two largest, you know, 200 years ago, New York City's two largest uh, employers no longer employ a single person in the city. There's no shipping industry in New York City, and there's no garment industry in New York City. There's not a stitch of clothing, you know, sewn together in New York, at least legally. Um, you know, so jobs will adapt. The economy will evolve, and the, and the world will evolve to the point where there will be other services and there will be other types of jobs that will, that will pop up as, you know, as this insourcing and outsourcing revolution kind of evolves. I wouldn't even call it an evolu- a revolution. I would kind of use the cliche that it is an evolution. I think and, um, so, too. Yeah. I don't think that folks have a tremendous amount to fear from, you know, from all this. I think that um, it's an, it actually presents itself as an opportunity, especially if you're looking Huge. to get promoted. Huge opportunity. I mean, globalization is happening. It has happened. And there's nothing that anyone can do to legislate it or, you know, back or, or anything like that. It's, it's inevitable. And it you, you have is. to understand it and you have to figure out where you can benefit from it. And certainly in the technical field, there's no skills you're currently sitting with as a programmer that aren't valuable in some form, irrespective of the changes going on in the economy right now. If, sure, the basic uh, you know, regex building technique you had has been outsourced, but your knowledge of the domain that that was working in, you know, the software that you were building, and that general skill that you have around solving these kinds of problems, those things are still valuable. You just got to find other work and how to do it. That's true. And we as developers tend to devalue our abilities because there's always somebody smarter than us right around the corner. And But, you know, that's just the way we there, are. There's a nasty habit that smart people have in general, which is to forget how much they know. Yeah. They're far more focused on what they don't know. And uh, it quickly runs away with you. you. You lose out on this whole idea that you actually understand quite a few things. You just don't value them anymore. Exactly. 
So um, when are we going to do lunch with Forte? Well, we can do lunch whenever you want, and I can tell you about trips of climbing Mount Everest, and I can <laughs> tell you lots of dirt on Richard from Kilimanjaro. So, <laughs> you know, Steve, you are the modern day like British safari explorer who's gone away and seen all these crazy things, and then you come back and you sit in your library in your in your smoking jacket with your pipe, and like everybody's around at your feet, and you tell them stories of wild animals and Kilimanjaro and crazy weather <laughs> things, and standing on the Great Wall of China, and everybody's just going, "Whoa." Yeah, that's pretty cool. Maybe that, everyone has to have a role in life, and you know, maybe that's just my role. Just get the smoke. I should just get the smoking jacket, get the pipe, <laughs> and just start telling the stories. Gotta get the piff helmet. Exactly. That's so, should I tell a Killy story? Sure. The Steve Killy story that I tell the most often is I say, you know, Steve was the only friend of mine that was on the trip that was a real professional climber. And I'll tell you how you can I recognize a professional climber from an amateur. He's the only one not vomiting. Well, no. No, that would not be correct. That's they, but you're on, you're on the right track. We're coming over the lip of the crater. So this is the Western Breach. It's been the hardest climbing day of them all. Uh, we, we really struggled. It was very difficult. It was very cold. And we're at 19,000 feet. In fact, from here, we're going to walk down 500 feet as we go into the crater to camp the night. And we get over the sill. Just remember, at, 19, at 1,800 feet, there's half the amount of oxygen in the air than at sea level. Which is right. pretty substantial. Now, is this 100 or 1,000? 1,800 or 18,000? 18, 18,000 feet. Okay. So, 5,500 5, meters. Wow. So, there's not a lot of air. And, and at 19,000 feet, where we were at that point, there's nothing alive. I mean, there's not... There's not bugs. There's no lichen. The The ravens that have been following us since the jungle have given up on us finally. Every morning we'd wake up, we'd open the tent, there'd be a raven sitting out there saying, Hey, you dead yet? <laughs> but now they're gone. You know, at 16,000 feet, when we kept going up, they went, go by yourself, forget it. So I was with the first group that went up the breach. And so we're on this, we're up on the sill now and, and resting, getting ready to go down. Steve was with the second group. And as he came over the sill, he got to the top. And here's where you see the professional climber right there. He looks at me. He says, take a picture now because I'm going to throw up. I said, ah. okay. So I took this picture and I can show you the photo. It's just, then he threw up without falling down or anything, and said, okay, let's go. <laughs> See, the pro just pukes and goes. The amateurs are laid out. But he, was, he threw up, and then he was ready to go. You have to do it. It's like ripping off a Band-Aid. Uh, don't hold back. Yuck. He was also, when we got, we actually got to the summit the next day, the next morning, we were on the top of the mountain, and he spent the least amount of time there. He's like, we're up here. We're done. Take my picture. I am out of here. And he right. was the first one down to the next camp at 10,000 feet by several hours. In fact, as I recall, your guide was doing everything you do to keep up with you because you were running down the mountain. Is it harder is to go true. down than it is to uh, go it up actually, sometimes? It's harder on your legs to go down, but as you gain the oxygen, you just pick up speed. Yeah. And um, it's interesting. Is also also things like my appetite come back, and oddly enough, is um, I start talking again around fifteen thousand feet because I'm oddly very silent, very silent above sixteen, seventeen thousand feet. Wow! For a very talkative person, um, Mount Everest. You hear all about the great Sherpas. You know how they. You know. You know. You hear that. You know. Um, the Sherpas will carry all your stuff up the mountain and all this stuff. And I have photographic evidence of this. Is coming down off of Everest. My Sherpa actually pulled over and said, Steve, you're wearing me out. Whipped Shut out up. a little poncho and got on the ground and took a nap. He goes, you know the way. I'll catch up with you later. Huh. 
<laughs> Apparently, going down is something Steve does extremely well and fast. I thought he was going to say, "Will you shut up?" Well, I'm sure that's what he was saying. <laughs> but technically, the customer's always right, so um, right. <laughs> he probably didn't want to tell me to shut up. All right, so Steve, I got to ask you: have You seen anything really cool on the web lately, or downloaded a tool, or anything tickle your fancy you've seen online? Well. I downloaded LimeWire recently. Is that illegal to talk about? No. <laughs> and they have a, a, a they have a new version of LimeWire out that works uh, pretty well. What do you and, uh, uh, What do you use that for? I uh, exchange recipes, just like it was designed to do. Oh, okay. <laughs> but um, I actually use. I think I might have talked about this before. Um, I use a, a a client for IM called Trillion, which uh, lets me use. Um, both uh, the MSN and the, and the Yahoo and the AOL, and I find this invaluable. I actually use it every day, and it's something that I'm um, a big fan of. And um, I'm also a big fan of Skype. I use the video conferencing with my contractors in India, appropriate for the show. And I even use Skype in and Skype out because um, I do all this traveling to India. What's that? Have- What's Skype in and Skype out? Skype in allows you to have a U.S. phone number and folks can call you. And it costs, um, I forget what it is, a couple bucks a month or I forget what it is. It's maybe like $30 a year. And people can phone in to your, to your Skype number. It rings right on your Skype on your computer. And Skype Out gives you the ability to dial numbers out. And what will happen with Skype Out is you do that, and it's global rates because Skype doesn't care where you are because you're not on a landline. So you call the U.S. or you call uh, Mexico, Buenos Aires, Europe. It's all the same price. It's about one euro cent a minute. And it's great because when I travel to, I travel to Europe quite often, but when I travel to India and all these other places, it's like $4 a minute of roaming fees on my cell phone. Wow. You know, it's singular wireless. So I just get to the high-speed Internet connection, put on my Skype headphones, and I'm calling home for pennies on the minute. And um, that's uh, Skype just came out with a brand-new download that allows you to do Skype in, Skype out, uh, which is the Skype out has been available for a while now, about six or eight months, but Skype in is pretty new at Skype 2.0, which I think was released probably like in December or January. And then they've also added the video conferencing, which, uh, which works pretty well, actually. You know, Richard, it occurs to me that um, many of our guests have, note, have uh, said Skype when I asked this question. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Skype is one of the tools that the tech folks, especially the traveling tech folks that we're usually talking to, absolutely depend on. And they have a cell phone. I mean, they have a PDA version, right? They do. And you can actually put it kind of on a PDA. I also have a Linksys phone that connects with a USB port to my computer that looks just like a regular wireless phone. And that particular phone will just um, ring when, it, when someone calls my Skype. And I can walk around the office and talk on that phone. So that's actually a pretty neat thing as well. Wow. Cool. Very cool. You got the bandwidth. Why not use it? Exactly. And this is one of the reasons why the globalization becomes easier and easier, is that bandwidth is there. People create the products and the services that we need to uh, you know, continue this evolution that we were talking about during the show. And you're certainly a, a model citizen in the globalization economy. So, I find it a problem when people call me now, even on my work phone, because they know this. They, um, um, give me a quick story. Is right before Christmas, a, a very important customer of ours, uh, actually our largest customer, our representative there, she phones my office number, and I'm sitting with a good friend of mine named Gushkin in a um, hotel lobby in Istanbul. 
And she phones me up, and I say to her, hey, I'm actually um, in Istanbul right now, and I'm sitting in Europe looking at Asia. I'm watching boats float up the Bosphorus. And she thought that was the coolest thing ever because she called my regular two-on-two phone number that she always gets me at my office. So now her, like my parents and friends, the first thing they do when they phone me is ask me where I am. Well, well, that um, happened to me once. I think I called you or Richard called you or somebody. We were together. And uh, uh, and you said, I can't talk now. I'm standing on the Great Wall of China. That's right. Yeah, he was calling. Steve has a rule that whenever he meets, reaches a major artifact, it actually started with the Eiffel Tower, didn't it? It did start with the Eiffel Tower. He got, he got a, he was up on the Eiffel Tower, phoned me, and I was I think I was in a public market somewhere, and I answered the phone. And he says, "Hey, I'm on top of the Eiffel Tower," and I said to the person standing next to me, "Hey, it's my friend calling from the Eiffel Tower," and they're like, "Yeah, right." They did. So now every him. time he's on the Eiffel Tower, he phones me. That is true. <laughs> yeah, and and same thing for the for the Great Wall when he's on the Great Wall, he's like. Here I am on the Great Wall. Where are you? Yeah, it's always fun doing that. You give people a jazz. And now with the camera phones, you get to take these cool photos and shoot them off to people from places like the Great Wall of China and things like that. I sent my niece and my nephew a picture of the Great Wall of China, like me on the Great Wall of China to my sister's phone and, you know, the power of technology, you know, which yeah. is great. Now, it was your niece that got into trouble with the school because they thought she was making up stories about her mythical Uncle Stephen. I have a seven-year-old niece, and I um, <laughs> don't want to get into my personal family baggage, but my mom complains like most moms, and I'm not around enough, that I'm traveling too much, and right. um, don't spend time with my niece and my nephew. And my niece just loves when I go traveling because I always bring her back stuff. I bring her back cool things from crazy places. And I had a string of trips last year. And um, I went to a lot of places in a row, and some of them weird, you know, like Algeria. Not many people's uncles go to Algeria. I went to Algeria and Turkey and Pakistan, all in a row of a couple weeks, in India as well. And she's coming in with all this money. And um, they were also talking about places in the world. She goes, my uncle's been there, my uncle's been there. And when they came up to Antarctica, as we all know, you know, I just did that marathon in Antarctica. She goes, oh, yeah, my Uncle Stephen just ran a marathon in Antarctica. <laughs> like, Come on. <laughs> and Come they called on. my sister up and said, you know, we think um, there's a problem with exaggeration and lying, you know, with your daughter. Uh, and they go, oh, no. She's like, that's my brother. And then um, they called her out in class once. And she, she said to the teacher, Google him. Wow. And they actually Googled me in the class. It was when awesome. I was in Pakistan, and I was posting some pictures of this. I went to these. When I was in Pakistan, Microsoft Pakistan doesn't let you out of the hotel. So I literally had to sneak out of the hotel and bribe a taxi driver to bring me to this ancient burial ground on, like, the Tigris Valley. And um, I took all these pictures, and I put them on my web blog, and that's what came up. Uh, when my niece said, Google him. He's in Pakistan. And, um, <laughs> that's so cool. <laughs> it's the power of technology, awesome. right? So. <laughs> It is pretty cool. Well, here we are at the end of another great show. Thank you, Steve. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, and thanks for sort of bailing us out. No worries. It was more than bailing us out. It was a great show. I think every time I've been on, I've bailed you out. So I'll just every time you need someone. <laughs> <laughs> and we're still going to do that lunch uh, in Manhattan show. Where I'm going to come down with a portable recordable. We'll have some pizza and beer and and, re- and record a conversation. Until then, au revoir. Adieu and all that. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com 
and at msdn.microsoft.com slash D-O-T-N-E-T-R-O-C-K-S. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a, a toy boy, life is hard.